Judges 11 and the story of Jephthah. Uh, because some of these accounts are longer, we're not gonna, I'm not going to read the whole passage uh, and then preach on it. We're going to kind of read and try and pick our way through uh, understanding uh, as we go along the way. Uh, let me ask you a question, though, just as we begin. If the Holy Spirit was to speak, what, what do you imagine the Holy Spirit sounds like? How would you know if you're hearing Holy Spirit words? Very often Christians talk about wanting to hear the voice of the Spirit. We want to go to church and hear the Spirit speak. Well, the good news, of course, is that the Holy Spirit has spoken. In his letter to Timothy, Paul says that all Scripture, in other words, all, particularly the Old Testament at that point, but the New, new as well now, all the Old Testament is God-breathed, literally God-spirited. In other words, every word we read this morning is the Holy Spirit speaking. And that might surprise us because we're going to read some pretty strange stuff. Some of it will seem, frankly, a bit odd, a bit dull, a bit alien. It's an account of a battle, a kind of tribal warfare at the end of the Bronze Age. And yet that is how the Holy Spirit not just spoke back then, but speaks today. Paul goes on to say, preach the word in season and out. Your job, Timothy, as a pastor is to preach, to explain, to bring to the congregation these words of the Holy Spirit. So although they were written many thousand years ago, this is how we hear the voice of the Spirit. So let's hear what he has to say to us. Judges 11 verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless or empty fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Here's Jephthah's origin story. Jephthah is going to be the hero of the story. And like any good superhero children, you might... I've uh, watched on TV, Batman or Spider-Man. He has an origin story. Where did it all begin? And for Jephthah, it's pretty ropey, isn't it? Uh, he's got a dodgy birth. First one, he's the son of a prostitute. And his dad is Gilead. Now, one of the slightly kind of murky things going on here, alongside the fact of being the, the son of a prostitute, is Gilead is the name of the area he lives in. And so it may well be that what's being implied here is he's the son of a prostitute and who knows who? Who knows which man from Gilead? So it could be a coincidence. Okay, the, the land's been called Gilead for ages. It could be a, a coincidence. This could be he's the son of a prostitute and John leads from Leeds. But it may be saying, actually, who knows who this guy's father was? Could have been any of the men in the area. Uh, either way, he's not a kind of legitimate family man. And so in verse 2, his brothers, whether it's his literal brothers, if they've got one dad or the kind of the, the townsfolk, as it were, drive him out. He is despised and rejected by his own people. You've no share in us. And so off he goes out into the wilderness. Adversary fl flees into this land of Tob. And a bunch of guys gather around him. The, the word means empty. It's sometimes used of poor. They're not necessarily baddies, but they are people with nothing who gather around him. It's a bit like later in, uh, in Samuel when King David, you might remember, gathers a bunch of people around him in the, in the cave of Adullam. There they are in the, uh, the wilderness. He's driven away. And a bunch of, well, people with nothing 
gather around him. And he begins life, children, almost as a kind of Robin Hood. He's got this bunch of men uh, and they're out there fighting in the wilderness. But things start to go wrong for his homeland, for Gilead. In fact, for most of Israel. So verse four, let's pick it up again. Uh, After a time, the Ammonites, that's another tribe outside of Israel, not part of God's people. The Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? So you see what's going on? The Ammonites raid. And suddenly the, the, the elders of Gilead think, well, we need someone who's good at fighting. We need someone strong and mighty. Let's go crawling back to Jephthah. So off they go to Jephthah, come back. They say, come back and protect us from the Ammonites. And Jephthah initially is pushing back. Just a minute, you didn't want me. When I was growing up, you sent me off packing. Now you come crawling back because he's a strong and mighty warrior. But verse eight, they press on. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzpah. Jephthah ultimately is gracious towards his brothers who despised him. He is willing to come and be their saviour, their rescuer. But he seems to be a godly man. Do you see verse 9? He, he knows who ultimately will win the battle. Verse 9, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, then I'll be your head. If the Lord conquers, he's not self-centred, he's not saying it's all about me. He knows it's only God Almighty, Yahweh, who can win the battles. In fact, Nobody in the whole book of Judges, nobody speaks about the Lord more than Jephthah. Uh, you might see, uh, if you've got a Bible on your lap, you might see the word Lord is in capital letters, kind of small capital letters. Uh, that is the, uh, it's a habit English Bibles have got into uh, of writing um, Lord when the word Yahweh, the name, God's special name Yahweh comes up. Yahweh was the name God gave his people in the Old Testament. Now you may know the Jews were so worried about mispronouncing Yahweh, God's name, that every time they got to it in the scriptures, so in the Hebrew that just says Yahweh there, every time they got to it they would say Lord instead. Hebrew word Adonai. And that sort of somehow come over into English translations, many of them anyway. In some ways it's a bit unhelpful. This is God's special name. It's a bit like saying Jesus, you know, it's his special name, not just generic God, But Yahweh, the special name God has given his people to call him by. And no one uses that name, that special, he is my God, he is the God of our people. No one uses that name more than Jephthah. So he agrees to come back. Let's pick up the story in verse 12. Uh, The Ammonites have raided. They're smashing up Israel, particularly Gilead. What is Jephthah going to do? Is he just going to ride into battle on the back of his horse or camel, swinging his sword? No. No. Verse 12, then Jephthah sent messages to the king of the Ammonites and said, what do you have against me that you've come to me to fight against my land? 
What are you doing, in other words? What have you, why have you started this fight? Why have you started this war? You've attacked us, not us, you. And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah. Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Those are all rivers. And now, therefore, restore it peaceably. So the king of the Ammonites says, well, you nicked our land when you came out of Egypt. Hundreds of years ago, 300 plus years ago, you were slaves in Egypt. You came out and you stole the land you're now living in, that land of Gilead. And it's mine, really, says the king of the Ammonites. But Jephthah's not having it. Verse 14, Jephthah again sent messages to the king of the Ammonites and said to them, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messages to the king of Edom saying, please let us pass through your land. And the king of Edom would not listen. But they also sent to the king of Moab and he wouldn't consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness, went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they didn't enter the territory of Moab for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. See what he's saying? So far, he's saying, look, you're misremembering here. Don't accuse us of nicking your land. In fact, when we came out of Egypt, these two kingdoms, Moab and and, um, Ammon were there and we went round them. It's giving them a little history lesson. Now, this is the kind of stuff, at this point, if we're absolutely honest, 21st century, our eyes kind of glaze over. We've got Ammonites and Amorites and Edomites and Moabites and Gileadites. And what on earth is going on? Let me just remind you, this is the voice of the Holy Spirit. It is hard work. They flat out it's hard work. I promise you this week has been hard work in my study as well. Okay, it's not one of those passages you look at and just think, oh, bang, I can see the, I can see the application really easily. It's a tribal warfare from two and a half thousand years ago. No, it's hard. But God has put it in the Bible for a reason. Okay, so let's try and persevere and dig through. So, no, we haven't trampled over your land, he says. Uh, Rather, let's pick it up at verse 19. Israel, still giving his history lesson. Israel then sent messages to Sihon, king of the Amorites. Oh, good, another tribe. King of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through the territory. So Sion gathered all his people together and encamped Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion on all the people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok, from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? What's he saying? It's confusing because there's Ammonites who have attacked in uh, the days of Jephthah and Amorites, you sound very familiar. They're very similar, sorry. What, 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 what Jephthah is saying is, look, king of Ammon, this was never your land. Actually, it belonged to the Amorites. And we tried to go around the land, we tried to go, but no, they attacked us and so God gave us victory. It was never yours. God gave us this land. Again, he's a godly man. He sees it's all the gift of Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord he talks about. So don't try and claim that, it, that it's yours. It's, it's been ours because we took it, having been attacked by those naughty Amorites. And so you just need to go home. Are you really going to beat us? In verse 24, he gets a bit more punchy. Why didn't you possess? You just possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess. And all the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. 
Now, are you any better than, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Did he ever go to war with them? Well, Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Acre and its villages and all the cities on the banks of the island 300 years. Why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you and you do be wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent him. Look, if you're totally lost, that's very understandable. <laughs> very understandable. It's hard to pick your way through. But very, very simply, Jephthah is saying to this king who has invaded his country and claims that it's Jephthah's fault for being there in the first place, who are these Israelites thinking they're living in this land? Jephthah is saying, no, it was given us by God. It was never yours. We did take it from another country, but they attacked us first. And do you really think you're going to beat us? The Lord is on our side. He is trying diplomacy. He is trying the peaceful route. And he recognises what almost nobody else in the book of Judges has recognised so far. See verse 27 right at the end? The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. One of the problems in the book of Judges is people keep trying to be in charge themselves. And Jephthah says, no, the Lord is the judge. Yahweh is the real ruler. He is a man of faith. He's not hot-headed. He's tried his best. He's dedicated to Yahweh. But the king of Ammon is having none of it. Now, all that, all that, that's woken you up, hasn't it, on a Sunday morning? All that leads us into what is, if Jephthah is famous for anything, what is the most famous incident in Jephthah's life? I wanted us to walk through it because I think Jephthah has had a pretty bad rap. If you've got an, uh, an ESV, one of the church Bibles on your, on your lap, it's probably got a title, something like Jephthah's Tragic Vow. Jephthah's Tragic Vow. Now, children, those headings... Whenever you see something like those headings, they aren't part of the Bible. They're what the, the people who translate the Bible into English and print it and sell it in W.H. Smith, they stick those bits in. And sometimes they're helpful and sometimes they're really not. And here I think they're really not. So let's look. Well, let's look at this vow, the vow and the victory. Verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. There we go. He's heading towards the Ammonites for battle. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the door of my house or whoever comes out from the door of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And or, or I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith. 20 cities as far as Abel Keranim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. And besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've, become, you've brought me very low. For you've become the cause of great trouble to me. For I've opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what, you've gone out of, what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father 
who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. What is going on there? This is where it gets tricky. Not tricky like the first bit, where you're just totally baffled by Ammonites and Amorites and Moabites and all the rest of it, but tricky because both Jewish and Christian readers of this passage over the centuries have had two wildly different interpretations of what's going on. It doesn't happen very often, but it does happen here, I'm afraid. I'm going to tell you the two interpretations very simply, and then I'm going to try and persuade you of one of them. But you'll see they are remarkably different. It's all about this vow. Do you see that children, that, that um, Jephthah makes a vow in verse 30. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever or whoever, perhaps better translated, comes out from the doors of my house to meet me shall be the Lord's, or I'll offer it up for a burnt offering. I'm going to go and fight against the Ammonites, says Jephthah to the Lord. If I win, I will give you whoever comes out of the door of my house. One stream of thought says he is offering to Yahweh, who he seems to know pretty well and has spoken about lots and has recounted history from the book of Numbers. and all that. He is offering a human sacrifice of his daughter. Um, in this sort of way of thinking, Jephthah is thinking, well, hopefully it's a, you know, I don't know, hopefully it's a sheep who wanders out the door or, you know, and um, then his daughter walks out and he's, oh, no, he's gutted, but I'm going to have to kill her and sacrifice her to the Lord. And she says, yep, you're going to have to. And so they go ahead with it. It's a human sacrifice. The other option, and this is the one I want to argue for, the other option is that it never crosses Jephthah's mind to sacrifice his own human daughter. Human sacrifice is an abomination. Instead, he is dedicating to the Lord whoever comes out of the door. In other words, he's given to the Lord's service. As it turns out, it's his daughter. So she'll go and work in the temple as one of the kind of female temple servants we read about in various parts of the Old Testament. So very simply, human sacrifice or giving his virgin daughter over no longer to sort of have kids for him and form a dynasty and all the rest of it, but to serve uh, in the temple, dedicating his daughter to the Lord. Um, I think it has got to be that latter. It has got to be that. I cannot see in Judges 11, we have a, 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 a judge sacrificing his daughter as a thanksgiving offering to the Lord. Why not? We'll just look at it. Just before he makes the vow in verse 30, what happens? Verse 29, the spirit of the Lord was upon him. The spirit of the Lord fills Jephthah. And the very next thing he does is make this vow. Now, of course, spirit-filled people can sin. But my life, look at the, look at the timing. As soon as the spirit comes, he makes this vow. If the vow is, I'm going to sacrifice whoever walks out the door, that is an unbelievable thing to happen right next door to the filling of the spirit. Uh, then every, get everything we've seen about Jephthah so far, that's why, I was, <laughs> that's why we w waded through all that sort of difficult history lesson from Jephthah. Everything we've seen about him is he's a godly guy. He's not rushing into battle. He knows his Old Testament. He's constantly using the name of Yahweh more than anyone else in the whole book. He's willing to forgive and forget and to come and rescue he constantly acknowledges that it's the Lord who's the real judge, not him. It's the Lord who wins victories, not him. He just seems, from everything we've seen else about him, he seems like a godly guy. Not perfect, of course, but godly. And even in the vow, when you look at it in verse 31, 
There's a perfectly natural way of reading it. Again, depending on what version you've got on your, on your knee. In verse 31, whoever comes out from the door of my house to meet me, he knows he's speaking about a human being. He's not thinking, oh, I might be Rover, or I hope it's the cat. Can't wait to get rid of the cat. He's using language about human beings. That word meet is only ever used of human beings. He knows it's going to be human coming out of the door. He's thinking it, it might be one of my servants. Who knows? It is in that sense a, a vow he doesn't know how, quite what will, the fulfillment will look like. But it's going to be a person he's going to be dedicating to the Lord. And therefore, it is just incredible to me to think that Jephthah, this seemingly godly, patient, wise man, who's full of the spirit, made a vow knowing that he would have to sacrifice a human being. Human sacrifice in the Old Testament is the ultimate of sins. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah says God can't even think about it. It never even crosses his mind that human beings would get that wicked. It is the worst thing you could do. And yet there's nothing negative spoken about Jephthah in the whole Bible. There's nothing negative in Judges 11. Uh, there's nothing negative when Samuel, a bit later, talks about the judges. He says, remember how God sent you judges to rescue you, to help you? He sent you, you know, good old Samson, good old Deborah and Barak, good old Jephthah. Think how kind the Lord was to you when he did that. It seems very strange if Jephthah had committed the worst sin of anyone in the entire Old Testament. He would be the most evil man in the Bible. Not only that, but when we get to the New Testament, you may know that in the book of Hebrews, we're given what's sometimes called the, the Hall of uh, Fame, the faith. So we get this great list of characters who, are, who have faith. Now, of course, they're not perfect. Of course, they're not perfect. But in that list are people like Abraham and Moses and David. Now, we know all these people sinned. But you don't include that list. The utter horrors of the Old Testament. The kings like Ahab, who led the people away from the Lord. And in Hebrews 11, we read, Time would fail me to retell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped to the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight, on he goes. It's basically a commendation of them. Not perfect, but a commendation of them. To include Jephthah, if he'd sacrifice his daughter, well, it just seems, frankly, incredible. No, Jephthah's daughter is given to serve in the tabernacle. Again, we haven't got time to turn to the passages, but look in 1 Samuel 2 or Exodus 38, we meet these women who serve in the tabernacle. And that's why the the... the, the uh, when the, the vow is fulfilled, when she walks out the door and he's gutted because he realizes this is the end. His daughter's going to go away and serve in the tabernacle. Of course, he's gutted. His line is over. She will have no kids and therefore he'll have no dynasty. But the, the, the weeping is over her virginity, not her death. That's the emphasis, isn't it? All the way through uh, from verse 37 onwards. She and her friends weep her virginity. Again, it's not about sex. It's about dynasty. No children, no line. And in verse 40, the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Again, I hate doing this, but it's just a very strange translation. The word lament there has only been used once else in the Bible. 
It's been used, in fact, in the book of Judges. And it, it just means tell, to, to recount, to tell the story of. It's used earlier in Judges uh, when Deborah is singing and encouraging anyone to tell, same word as le- translated lament here, to tell the great deeds of the Lord. Deborah is not saying lament the great rescue that God has given. Jephthah, I'd suggest to you, is a godly, imperfect, but godly man who God uses to rescue his people. And Jephthah's vow, far from being abhorrent, Jephthah's vow is, I think, an incredible example of faith. He didn't know who would come out, but he was still willing to offer the Lord as a thanksgiving. Whoever walked through the door. In other words, he's willing to say, Lord, I trust you totally. I'm about to go and fight in a battle for you. He doesn't say, um, he doesn't say I'll only go if. He's going anyway. But I trust you so much that as a thanksgiving, I'll give you whatever you want. Whatever you want. Whoever walks out the door, I'll give you. Nothing will I withhold. I'm not going to be even in control of the, of the gift, this thanksgiving offering. And that, I think, is incredible faith. It's also incredible faith from the daughter. Do you notice that? She doesn't say, no, daddy, how dare you? She says, as the Lord wills. And off she goes. She's going to be sacrificed. She ought to protest it. And so what everyone else around. But no, willingly she goes to serve. Now, Jephthah is a complicated passage. It may be you've listened to the last sort of few minutes and thought, no, I'm not, I'm not persuaded. You've thought about it before and you've gone a different fine. But, but let's, let's head here. There is nothing that it is unreasonable of the Lord to ask from those he has saved. There is nothing it is unreasonable of the Lord to ask from those he's saved. And whether, whether or not you can sort of attribute that directly to Jephthah or not, even if you're holding back on that, that is true, isn't it? That is true, isn't it? Romans 12. What does Paul say? After 11 chapters of explaining the gospel, of all that the Lord has done to save us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Because God has rescued you, live as a living sacrifice. Nothing can be withheld because he now owns you. Nothing needs to be withheld because you're totally sure he is for you. He's won the victory. I saw not long ago a, a letter written by a missionary called Adoniram Judson. And he knew he was, he was heading off um, to um, Burma, as it is now, Myanmar. And um, he wanted to marry uh, this, uh, uh, this lady, Anne. And as was tradition, um, he wrote... Uh, to her father, who lived in Bradford. Okay, so it's local. He wrote this. And then, so he's going two, three hundred years ago. Two, three hundred years ago. Imagine, just imagine, if you, some of you are dads, some of you might be one day, but just put yourself in the, in the shoes of Mr. Heseltine of Bradford when he gets this letter. I have to ask you now whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent... Which just means agree whether you'll let this happen. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. 
Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall abound to her saviour from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? How do you reply to that letter? Are you willing to let your daughter go, to never see her again? Very likely for her to suffer immense hardships, married to me. How could he even ask? Isn't that horrible? Is that terrible? What he asks because he knows that Mr. Heseltine of Bradford and indeed his daughter and Adoniram himself, they are totally safe in their Saviour's arms. Not safe from danger. Do you see that? He says she might die. And, and, and you know, like, he's, not, he's, he's, not, he's not good on your PR team, is he? He's not spinning it. He might die. And if you're not quite clear on that, Mr. Heseltine, let me just explain some ways she might die. Sea, climate, disease, distress perhaps a violent death. You know, just to be really clear, there's loads of different ways this could go horribly wrong on a human level. Loads of horrible deaths we might meet. But will you let her go? For the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you. He's rescued us. He's saved us. He's forgiven us. We have eternal life, totally secure. So are you willing to risk your daughter not living to be 70 but dying at 25. Who cares? See, Adonai Judson understands there is nothing unreasonable about risking all, about giving God all, about letting God take what he will. And he doesn't know when he writes the letter. Maybe everything will be happy. Maybe they'll retire in their beds age 75. Who knows? You never know the future. But he's willing to lay it all down on the line for God. So many times we barter, Lord, you've saved me, but it's not reasonable for you to ask me to refrain from sex before marriage. Lord, you've saved me, but it's not reasonable to ask me to forgive someone or let go of my anger. Lord, you've saved me, but it's not reasonable of you to risk my career by standing up for what Jesus says about identity or sex or gender. Lord, you've saved me, but it's not reasonable for me to have to, I don't know, something as small as go to a prayer meeting when I'm tired. We put limits on what is reasonable about what, of, of God to ask us to do. We're so full of ourselves and our rights. I came across a Romanian pastor about whom I know nothing about other than this. He said this. He was, he was called Joseph Tson. He was imprisoned in Romania uh, for several years for his faith. Where there are some Romanians here this morning. You can tell me about him afterwards if you know about him. Dr. Joseph Tson. In the 20th century, he said this, in 20th century Christianity, we've replaced the expression total surrender with the word commitment and the word slave with servant. But there's an important difference. A servant gives service to someone, but a slave belongs to someone. The pastor wanted to go to jail for his faith. Why? I'm not my own. It's not that I serve 
Jesus, a bit like you kind of serve your boss at work and there's a kind of reason, you know, they're not allowed to ask you to do really more than 40 hours a week and they must pay you a certain amount, otherwise it's a bit unfair. No, you're totally, totally, when you're saved by grace alone, you're totally in the hands of God. You're owned, you're slaves. And hence the language of Paul in Romans 12, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices. What happens to sacrifices? They die. Can I ask you, is that how you view yourself if you're a Christian? Day by day, you wake up, Lord, this is your day. Do with me as you will for your sake. Here I am to dedicate this day and myself to you. I am on the altar, totally safe and secure, because even if you call me to lay down my actual life, my breath and my heartbeat, I'll just go to glory. And anything short of that, well, who cares? We all, and I just, <laughs> it's easy to preach and, and so hard to do, isn't it? We're all so full of our rights. How dare God, dot, dot, dot. What, what can move us? The only, the, it, it, I, I'm really keen you don't mishear this. This is not me standing at the front. And, and you, you, you selfish bunch. You know, we've had some grace sermons. Now it's time to give you an absolute battle. What do you, what, who do you think you are not living as living sacrifices? I mean, that is true. That'll be true of every one of us in this room, preacher, as much as those listening. But a battering isn't what moves us ultimately. See, nothing will move us to really lay down our lives, really make sacrifices of things that hurt us. Giving my money, my time, giving up things I want to cling to, like my anger or my lusts or whatever it may be, you know, things I don't want to lay down, give up, my sins that I want to cling to. Nothing will make us lay those things down as long as we think that the path God is leading us on, the path of obedience, is a path to death and suffering and disaster. That's what the devil says. Obedience to God leads to a worse life. That's what he said to Eve in the garden. Take the fruit, you'll be better ignoring God. But when you see... Well, it's pitched, I think, just in shadowy form in Jephthah. A father willing to give his only child. An only child willing to sacrifice everything. When you see that little shadow fulfilled in Jesus, a father willing to give his only son for your sake. That's how much he loves you. That's how safe you are. Any hard obedience he asks of you is not because he's taking his pound of flesh. It's not payback. He's already done everything for you. He loves you that much. That when he asks you to do something hard, ultimately it will be for your blessing. He's got nothing to gain. He doesn't need your service. It must be for your blessing. Painful steps towards righteousness are for your blessing. Living as a living sacrifice, cutting off all you're told to cut off, is ultimately for your blessing. It doesn't mean that, I don't know, you, you split up with your non-Christian boyfriend and the next morning you're kind of happy. You may well be sad. Heaven has not yet arrived, but it is ultimately for your blessing. Only when we see that God has given everything for us, are we able in return as a thanksgiving, not to earn our way, but as a thanksgiving to give everything back to him. And so it drives us back as ever to the cross. That is where you must go. If you hear this and think, I just could not do that, then you must go to the cross and see that despite that hardness of your heart, he loved you. When you were willing to give him nothing, he gave you everything. When all humanity was willing to give Jesus, 
with nails through his wrists, a crown of thorns, a whipping, and a slow, agonizing, suffocating death. He was willing to give back eternal life, freedom, grace, and mercy. However badly you failed him, he'll have you back. So asking for that grace, asking for that grace to see what he's done for you, and in return, to live a wholehearted life for him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you sent your son into the world to give us everything, and we gave him nothing but pain and misery. We gave him nothing but death and mocking. And yet still he pressed on, not doing what was just and fair, not doing what was reasonable and striking us back, condemning us into hell, but rather pressing on in love, giving his very life and soul to torment that we might be blessed. So assure us of that, we pray, that we're willing in return to do whatever you ask of us, the little mini deaths you call us to day by day, knowing that they are the part of life. Forgive us our our selfishness, our half-heartedness. It is so ingrained in our souls. We despise it and yet we cling to it so foolishly. Purify us by the power of your spirit, we pray. For we ask in that Saviour's name. Amen.